before the Council of Areopagus, which is the biggest, most powerful, influential platform that anyone could have in his day. And they said, well, tell us about this. From what we understand, you're preaching foreign gods. This is something new to us. However, we're, we're willing to hear you. Now, I don't know if they were extremely interested in the possibility of adding another god to all of their other idols that were there. I don't know if they were looking for an opportunity to build a new temple and a new idol that they could go and worship that idol in the name of Jesus and the resurrection. I don't know. I don't know if they were pulling, pulling Paul in into the Council of Areopagus as a, court, as a courtyard jester to make fun of him. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is that he was brought to this platform, the most powerful platform of his time. Why? Because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ without compromise, and he was given this great opportunity now before the men of Athens at the council of the Areopagus. It's a great opportunity for him now, isn't it? But he got there because he did not compromise. Whenever it comes to us as the church, now we'll reiterate this here. As I spoke a couple weeks ago, you know, we don't, there's there, the, the going trend of the current church model that we see today is that we need to gain the rapport of the culture before we'll preach the gospel. We need to be loved and accepted by the world before we're willing to preach the gospel. We've got to create a relationship with the world before we do what Jesus Christ has called us to do. Well, my friends, I want you to understand that is a compromise. We do not compromise. We preach Jesus Christ to the world. Now, I was, um, I was reading in a book uh, earlier this week when it came to this I I idea. This is what one man says, says, When we believe that we must adapt our faith by following the culture's lead, then it is the world that is setting the agenda for the church. When we fall prey to this subtle seduction, what is viewed as normal and statistically average becomes what is right, and the distinctives of faith disappear. We are to remain separate from the world, but to be in the world. Our behavior doesn't, doesn't, doesn't look like the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We must be very careful. Because honestly, if we make our focus to... To, be, to, be, to gain favor with the world, what does our focus become? To, to be accepted by the world. Our focus has now shifted from the gospel and preaching Jesus to ex being accepted by the world before we preach Jesus. So we don't make any compromise here. Paul did not make the compromise even in the culture in which he was engulfed in in the city of Athens. He didn't, he didn't bother to look like the culture, to smell like the culture, to think and to act like the culture. He went to the people and he preached Jesus and the resurrection. And the result of that is, is they put him up on a pedestal and in a platform that gave him the opportunity to speak to the most powerful men in his day. But he got there without compromise. As I will reiterate one other phrase, as I mentioned last week. You know, the Church of Jesus Christ, First Baptist Church, here in Malvern, in myself, my goal is not for us to be hated or disliked. Okay, that's not our goal. However, that may be the result of what we do, but whether the world hates us or loves us, or whether the culture likes us or dislikes us, that needs to be the result of First Baptist Church unapologetically preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection without compromise. That is what we are called to do, is to preach 
Jesus and let the world deal with us how they want to. But our responsibility to the world is to be in the world preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection and leaving the results up to God and his work. Now, I would prefer to be loved by the world, but whenever the world loves us, let that be the result of what? Preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We can't compromise the, the, uh, the mission or the message that we carry in order to gain favor with the world. So, yeah, so to, in order to be in the world and not of the world, it requires us to be preaching the gospel without compromise. And the final, the final point that we'll be making on this this morning is that we need to know the culture that we live in. How many missionaries do you know that have ever stepped foot on foreign soil without researching the culture? How many of you think that would be smart? No. Doesn't make any sense. How many of you think it's wise to get to know the culture, to understand the religious background that they have, or maybe the challenges that you're possibly going to be facing? Is that a smart move? Absolutely. Now, just knowing about it, is that enough? No. You need to be prepared for it. You need to be ready to answer the tough questions that are going to be coming. If there's a certain religion that this, or a false religion that these people are going to be engulfed in already, guess what? You better be studying up on that religion. You need to understand where, where they are in that and understand the, the part, the, um, the, and how it relates to the Bible and how they differ and be able to point that out according to the Word of God that Christianity is the true religion. You need to be able to answer the tough questions. And the same thing in the culture in which we live today, we have got to know the culture and where they stand in order to be the most effective uh, children of God that we possibly can. Now, to know the culture, now what I mean by this is that we first must know the culture in relation to a biblical world view. You yourselves must possess a biblical worldview in order for you to compare and contrast what the world is doing with the very unchanging standard of the Word of God. If you don't know this book, if you do not have a biblical worldview, when you look at the world, you will not be able to expose the falsehoods and the lies of the devil out there. It requires you to, be, to know your worldview in order for you to know where the culture is failing. Does that make sense? Yeah, we must have ourselves discipled and disciplined in the very Word of God before we step foot out into the mission field because you must be able to view the world through the lens of the Bible to be the very most effective. Because what we have today is very few people who claim to be Christians have a true biblical worldview. And that's the truth. It's very sad. Because whenever you go out and you start preaching Jesus in the resurrection, and you start preaching on the truths of the very Word of God, that's why today that you won't have people in your face claiming to be Christians and believers in Jesus who are going to call you and stand with the world and call you a bigot and a liar. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? You see it. You see it happening today. And yes, they may be true born-again believers, but they don't have a biblical worldview. They're ignorant to what the Scripture truly says about the world in which they live, and therefore, they are in the world, and they are becoming like the world. They are conforming to the ideology of the world, and it goes in, into a very strong contrast to what the Bible truly teaches us. So you must know, not only know the culture, but first off, you've got to know what this Bible teaches. You must know the, and be able to, and ha, and to obtain a biblical worldview in order to be the most effective 
out in the world. It is very possible for you to be out in the world and be completely ineffective, and it's because you don't know what you're talking about. So we need to be very careful and be very responsible and take heed to the instruction that the Word of God gives us when we get into the world. It requires us to put in the time of transforming our minds in order to gain that spiritual renewal that comes from studying God's Word. We must be at that point. But in knowing the culture, whenever Paul was there for a few days and he was looking around and he was seeing that the people were there and they were given over to idols, he knew the culture in which he was being immersed. He knew where they were. So now as we begin to un- unfold this, so how did Paul deal with the, um, deal with the culture? Was it something different? Did he approach it in a different way? Did he change his message? Did he compromise in any way once he got to this point? Well, let's go ahead and find out. So what we see here is that in, uh, in verse 22, Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. Now he was given this position to speak to the council of the, Are- of the Areopagus. It says, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Now we see here Paul is not offensive in his language. He's almost complimenting them in their ability to worship. He's saying, look, I understand that you are a very religious people, and it's good to worship, but however, as I was passing through and I was considering the objects of your worship, I noticed something. I noticed something that you had an inscription to one of these unknown, to this unknown God. As though you're worshiping all of these other false idols, this one really intrigued me. Because as, the, as I look at, the, look at the, the condition around us, I see that you're very religious, you're, re, you're worshiping many different other gods, but I notice this one that really caught my eye. So he's got their interest now. And he says, this one, this inscription to the unknown God, says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, let me tell you about him. I'm going to tell you now who this unknown God to you is. Now, he started there a little bit different, and he starts off at the very beginning of time. Look at verse 24. He says, God who made the world and everything in it. He started preaching creation to them. Now, this was a different attempt. This was a different strategy than what he took in in verses 2. Look back whenever he was in Thessalonica. We see a contrast here because he was preaching in Thessalonica whenever he went to the synagogue. It says, Then, as his custom was, he went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from Scripture, doing what? Explaining to them that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. What's the differences here? The difference is is that in, 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 uh, in chapter 17 and verse 2, Paul is approaching Jews. He knows the culture of the Jews. He's a Jew himself of the tribe of Benjamin. He understands that, and, they, and he understands the foundation that they are standing on. They have the foundation of what? There is one true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. There's one true God, the one true God. And throughout Scripture, that they, were, that, that they have been prophesied that the Messiah is going to come, the Christ is going to come. 
So they had the foundation that was there, and Paul reasoned with them with Scripture, starting with Jesus and showing them that this Christ who came and was crucified was the one that you were looking for and you missed him. So he started, ration, started um, sort of rationalizing and reasoning, reasoning with that foundation in place that they were, they were monotheistic, they shared the same God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, and the fact that a Messiah was to come. And then, and then Paul was able to start there and say, this Jesus whom I preached to you was the Christ. But whenever he gets to Athens, the message doesn't change, but we see what? His starting point does. Where does he start? All the way back to creation. The creation account. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He says, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their, pre their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Now the culture that he is preaching to, they're not monotheistic, they're polytheistic. They believe in many gods. And, and, the, and what they believe is that they can worship and they can build these things to appease these gods with the things of their hands. And not only that, but they're worshiping things that are made of things and made of materials that are there that are found on God's world. And what we find here is that what, what Paul did, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it and since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in these temples made with hands. At the very beginning, he didn't compromise his message. At this point, he's saying, look, the God that you do not know, the God that, is, that you've got an inscription to the unknown God, this is the one true God who made every single thing that you see and observe. And he also made everything that you are fashioning with your hands and worshiping. And this God is above all things. He is the Lord of heaven and of earth. So let me tell you about this God called Mercury. God created Mercury. Let me tell you about this God Venus. God created Venus. You want to worship the sun? Guess what? God created that. You want to worship the things in the earth? Guess what? This God created that earth. And he is Lord over all of these things. That is the God that you do not know of. And this is a God that I am telling you, He is above and beyond anything that you have set up here that you've put together with your own hands. And He does not dwell in these temples made by your hands. No, this is the God who is above and beyond all things. An all-present God that, that, that is not worshipped by men's hands as though He needed anything from you. And so at that point, He's completely shattered their theology. He's saying, this is, there's one true God who's above all of these gods that you are now worshiping. And then he goes on in verse 27, it says, and so that they should seek the Lord and hope that he might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets, poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by the art of men's devising. 
So do not think for a minute that by worshiping things like gold and silver and stone and things that are made of your hand are worth anything. So not only has Paul at this point called out and said, look, there is one true God that you don't know about that's above any of these other gods here. He says that those gods are false gods and those gods are no good, but also your worship of them is sinful and it's offensive to that one true God. It is no good. Paul has been given a very powerful platform upon which to stand, and notice he does not compromise, does he? He doesn't say, well, it's okay for you to do that. You can just, whatever, is, whatever you believe is okay for you, and whatever I believe is okay with me. No, he preached to them the truth that there is one true God, and the fact that you're worshiping all these other gods is an offense, and it is sinful to this God that you don't even know. But since I have told you about him, look in verse 30. It says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent of what? Their sinful behavior before an almighty, righteous God. Notice so far he has preached, he has preached creation, he has, pre he has preached the fall and the sinfulness, and now he has preached repentance. He is calling these people to repentance because of their sinful behavior and trust in the Savior. Now, why is it important that he, that he was preaching all of these things? Well, he continues in verse 31. He says he, he calls everyone, all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. One day God is going to judge this world in righteousness. One day that time will come where God is done with, done with it all. The time has come and everyone in this world will be judged according to the righteousness of God himself. And if you stand before God without repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, it is going to be a bad, not only a bad day, it's going to be a very bad eternity because he will judge the world in righteousness. That is why it's so important that we do not compromise the message of Jesus Christ. We must preach and teach that repentance of their sins before an almighty God is required because we are sinful creatures who've offended our God, and the only way that we can be right with him is to repent of our sins and trust in the work of the Savior, who is Jesus Christ, for everlasting life. We cannot compromise that message. We can't water it down, and we cannot, and we cannot make any less of what it truly is. We are, not doing the, we are not doing the world justice in doing so. But as he, as he continues here, so because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Okay, Paul, how do you know that? Yeah, all this, is, all this is really good, but why in the world should we believe you, and what, what affirmation do you have? Well, let's continue reading. Because he has given us assurance of all of this by raising him from the dead. Because Jesus Christ is alive, that is the affirmation and the assurance that what he has just told them is absolutely, positively true. Now, what got him laughed at in the marketplace is now the same message that he is bookending his sermon with. He says, by, by the way, he has risen from the dead. I am not backing down off this message for you. I would, not do you. I would not do the message justice or the mission justice, and I would be lying to you if I did not tell you this, this fact. Jesus rose from the dead, and there's your assurance that one day judgment will fall. Therefore, you must repent of your idolatry 
and believe in the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can have a relationship with God the Father through that. So being in the world and not of the world, as Paul was able to see the condition of Athens, being polytheists, being pantheists, being willing to just add Jesus Christ onto all the other gods, what he, what he, what he actually recognizes is the foundation that, that they already had had to be completely destroyed, bulldozed, cleared off in order to lay a new foundation for the gospel. He had to lay the foundation of creation, that there's one God. He had to lay the foundation that man is sinful. He had to lay the foundation that we are accountable to a righteous and holy God. And that one God is calling us to repentance. And we are repenting. And when we repent, we are going to be set free from the judgment that is to come. He had to lay the foundation for them. The world in which we live today is what? Fifty years ago, I would say that, yes, we lived in a world where God is honored and the Bible has authority. But that we no longer live in that culture today. Yes, there are still people that believe that there is a God that exists and and that the Bible has some weight to it. But in the culture in which we live today, we live in a godless society, an atheistic society, a society who has their idols of humanism, relativism, postmodernism, and it's it's also even be said that many of them don't believe in truth and they don't believe in God, and the Bible has absolutely no authority. Have you ever tried to to reason someone with Scripture who says that the the Word of God is no good to me? So what do we have to do? We have to be prepared and know our culture We have to have the tools in order to tear down the structure that they already have, the false worldview that they have that doesn't support God, that doesn't support the Word of God, in order to build upon that which is needed in order to plant the seed of the gospel. We can do that, and we can be very effective in doing that, but it does take training. It does take discipling. It takes knowing the culture. Because I'm going to tell you, whenever you go out into the world and you come across the, the, intel, the intelligent atheist or the one who doesn't, doesn't believe truth exists or says truth is relative, it's really difficult to talk to them unless you can tear that truth claim down. We are called to destroy all arguments that exalt themselves up against the knowledge of God. And it requires study on our part to be prepared to do so. We must know our culture. We must be, we must be willing to... To, to, to take the worldview that they have and to be able to tear that down and to lay a new foundation that God is the God above all gods and that we have sinned against Him, that we are not right with Him. There is no, none righteous, no, not one. And then we keep building on that. But yet He loved you enough that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. And He was buried and He was risen again. And if you will repent of your sins and trust in the work that He did on the cross then you yourselves can be saved and you can be granted eternal life. But you've got to be able to tear down their foundation as well. We've got a much more difficult culture to work than what we had 100 years ago or 50 years ago. It's a different world. The culture is changing as fast as it possibly can, and, and, and as the years are going by, the culture is even developing even faster. So that's why it is very important for us to be in the world and not become of the world, as we must know the culture, know the people to whom we are preaching. And it takes work. (laughs) It takes work on our part to do this. So to be in the world and not of the world requires us to be provoked in our spirit enough to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We never compromise the message. 
We never compromise the mission that we've been set on. And to better do that, we must know our culture, know the people to whom we preach. Now, am I saying that a basic presentation of the gospel on any ear can't make a difference? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't preach the gospel until you know all the answers of all the skeptics. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying in the world in which we live, we're going to be much more effective and much more efficient if we know the culture and we have the answers for them. Now lastly, what was the result of what we see here? In conclusion, as our as our um, uh, praise team comes and takes the stage as we get prepared for an invitation. And what was the result that Paul saw? You have to understand, Paul's in Athens, a place given over to idols. He's been preaching Jesus. They bring him before the council of, of Areopagus. And he preaches Jesus Christ in the resurrection before the men of Areopagus. And he has a big audience. What is the result from what we see of having done this? In verse 32, it says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them, and however, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Diocinus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So the result of Paul's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ without compromise was that some mocked, some were willing to hear him further, and some believed. Now I want you to know, if you, if you want to make a name for yourself and you want to try to gain, the world's, gain, gain popularity with the world, you will get an opportunity to preach the gospel. If you get to the platform that you can preach and you've compromised your way there, you, you'll get it. And you'll have an opportunity to preach. But you know what's going to happen? When you preach, some will mock you, some will want to hear you further, and some will believe. You preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without compromise, some will mock you, some will want to hear you further, and some will believe. So why compromise? There's no reason that we should compromise. Let's stand this morning as we prepare for our invitation. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much.